welcome to the Persisters Can Podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Lubois. Today's certified persister is Patricia Favre. Patricia grew up in Oakville, Ontario with her parents who, while not overly partisan, made it clear that voting was an important civic duty. Patricia first got involved in politics at Queen's University, volunteering on local campaigns before securing a summer internship at Queen's Park. In government, she served as a communications assistant and then legislative assistant to the Minister of Community and Social Services before becoming an advisor to the minister responsible for Francophone Affairs. She then joined the Premier's office as a special assistant within the tour team. Patricia has served as the elected VP Communications on the Executive Council of the Ontario Liberal Party, as the Communications Chair for the 2020 Leadership Convention, and as a co-chair for the party's 2022 election campaign debrief. Patricia joins us today to talk about how she got involved in politics, what it takes to be on the Premier's tour team, and how we can encourage more women to get involved in civic life. Thanks for joining me, Patricia. Thanks so much for having me, Teresa. So I want to start with uh, where you grew up. Yeah, so I grew up in Oakville, which is um, just about 30 kilometers outside of Toronto. Um, But both my parents had immigrated to Canada by way of Montreal, so we didn't have a lot of family nearby, um, which kind of meant we chose a lot of our family, our neighbors, our friends, and developed a sense of community that way. Uh, Most of our family was, uh, was abroad or in Quebec. So were your parents involved politically when they came here or or what was the way that you first got involved in politics? No, no one in my family had ever really been quote unquote political. Like no one was attached to a specific political party or anything like that. Um, I was probably the first in my family to really go out and do that. Um, But my parents, maybe because they were immigrants, maybe because of their generation, uh, took their civic duty really seriously. So while they never pushed political views on us, uh, they sort of made it clear, at least in our home, that voting was important and that paying attention to sort of what government, what our elected officials were doing was really important. Um, my mom uh, my mom came from Egypt, so obviously a country that um, didn't have the uh, civic luxuries that we have here in Canada. And then um, my father is from Switzerland, which is just generally a very uh, patriotic country where people take their civic duty really seriously. My parents probably voted liberal more than anything else. Um, and part of that maybe being tied to, you know, immigrating under the Trudeau, the Trudeau senior days. Um, but they, uh, they weren't flashy about their political allegiance, I would say. I didn't really ever know what direction they voted in until I was much older. Um, so I think at a young age, sort of as a teenager, I thought politics was intriguing, but mysterious. Um, I remember wanting to get involved in high school and not really knowing how. Um, so it wasn't until I got to Queen's University and met people that were involved um, with the Queen's University Young Liberals that I really got involved. Um, I volunteered on the local federal campaign while I was a student there and eventually landed a student internship at Queen's Park between my second and third year of university. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that, because I know the Queen's Park internship was a thing that, uh, you know, sort of introduced politics to a lot of young people. What did that look like for you and what kind of stuff did you get to do in that role? Um, so I remember not like going into it, not really knowing anything about what I would be doing. Um, and my my fondest, perhaps one of my fondest memories is sort of 
So it would have been in 2005 was my first internship there. And it was my first week. And that year, for whatever reason, the, I can't remember why the budget was delayed. And so the government wasn't delayed, wasn't delivering the budget until um, late May or early June or something. So I was our, like the first week of internship and somehow my name got pulled out of hat to be one of the interns that helped like seat VIPs at the delivery of the budget. And so it was really impressive because, you know, I had never even been in, inside the legislature in Toronto. And here I was like, I don't know, escorting all these important stakeholders and politicians around and it felt like a really big deal. That's a really, really neat introduction to the budget process. Like, you know, for the, for those who don't know, the budget is something that gets read in the legislature, but there are invited guests who attend in the in the upper decks of the legislative assembly and get to watch it happen. But it's, you know, it's it's a big deal to get a ticket to that. So being able to be more or less front row part of that process on sort of your first week is 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 quite the experience. So where did you go from there with your with your political involvement? What was next? So I interned for two summers for cabinet minister Madeleine Mayo at the time. And I'm also a francophone, so it was a natural fit for me to be in her office. Um, so, you know, during those summers, uh, kind of got more involved um, on, you know, by-elections that were happen happened to be going on, um, got to know my local representative and the riding association in Oakville at the time a little bit. Um, and then I, I graduated from university and I have to say, I kind of wasn't involved in politics for a little while because I took a whole gap year and traveled to Europe and did all the sort of fun things you're supposed to do, like bartended at a youth hostel <laughs> and um, lived in Southern Spain and took Spanish classes and all those things. Um, and then I came back I uh, did a graduate program and, you know, kind of thought at the time that I wanted to go in the private sector. Um, but then the more I sort of got into it, the more I realized I just wanted to go back to politics. So um, from there, I um, got a job back in the office of the cabinet minister I had interned for. Right. So you became a communications assistant and legislative assistant to the Minister of Community and Social Services. Uh, then you became an advisor to the minister responsible for Francophone affairs. But during that time, you actually took a little break from government. You were still in the politics uh, side of things, and you became a, a campaign volunteer. You took a leave from your job to become a campaign volunteer in a by-election in, I think it was Ottawa, West Nepean. Can you talk about what it's like to work on a by-election full-time? Because it's very different than being, you know, a regular volunteer during a general election in a local community. There's a lot of focus put on a by-election. So what was that like being mm -hmm. a staffer in that? Mm -hmm. So um, so at the time I worked, like I said, I worked for Madeleine Mayer. She represented Ottawa Vanier. And um, there was sort of an opportunity for Ottawa members to ask any of their staff if they wanted to take a secondment and or leave, I should say, and, and go work on the by-election. At the time, Jim Watson had resigned his seat in Ottawa West Nepean to run for mayor. And Bob Shirelli, who was a well-known player there, had served as mayor of Ottawa previously, uh, was running in the by-election for the Ontario Liberals. Uh, in, in all honesty, that by-election was probably one of my favorite political experiences ever. Um, don't get me wrong. It was like, it was hard. It was long hours. Uh, I left home in Toronto for a grueling rent period. I moved into a very underfurnished rental, uh, with, I was going to, I was going to ask, did you have proper beds? Because I know in past by elections, people slept on floors. So I'm just wondering. I slept on an air mattress for an entire month. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it was like one of those um, like plug-in ones or whatever. Like, so I didn't have to, I didn't have to use a pump. So it was a, right. at least that oh, way. That, that's just luxurious. It every, night. every night I would let it pump up for like 10 minutes before I went to bed. <laughs> so how, um, how many people were sort of on that by-election with you and, and what did that look like day to day? Oh, how many, I can't remember how many people were full-time. In our house, there was like five, at least five or six of us. And it was like a three bedroom rental. And so I shared the bedroom with the only other woman in the house. Everyone else, the, the other, uh, the other staffers were male. And we worked like minimum, minimum 12 hour days. Um, I think we must have knocked on literally every door in Ottawa, West Nepean at least two or three times. Um, I remember we'd get home every night, uh, those of us living together and we'd, we'd be tired, uh, but we'd often stay up late and watch old episodes of the West Wing. Uh, it sounds really, it sounds really cliche, but it was how we'd unwind together uh, at the end of long days. It, it helps to keep the inspiration up for sure. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the, the by-election taught me a lot, like from a campaign perspective, it really hammered home for me the importance of IDing our vote. Um, I think we, we'd have to check the numbers. I think we won that by-election by like just under a thousand votes. So um, pulling the vote really, really counted on that election. Um, and, and then on top of it, it really taught me how much I enjoyed being on the ground, just sort of experiencing a local community where we were actually like making an impact and meeting people there, uh, hearing what they wanted from our party, hearing what they wanted from our government. Um, so I'd say that ultimately that by-election was what shifted my interest to tour. Uh, I was still really young. Uh, I want to say I was in my mid twenties at the time. Uh, I had no real commitments at home. And I just, I wanted to be on the ground rather than behind a desk. And I, I was ready to sort of take off uh, a big chunk of a challenge. So you were starting into that tour role basically in the lead up to the 2011 election, which, you know, at that point, tour, tour is always heavy. There's lots of stuff going on in that kind of job. But in the lead up to an election, I imagine it gets even heavier because there's a lot of announcements being made. You're, you know, out with the the leader or premier, depending on if it's a campaign or, or government event. So you're out constantly on the road, basically laying the groundwork for re-election. So can you talk about what the premier's tour team does? What does that look like day to day? So there's a lot of mystery around what a tour team does. And part of that's probably on purpose. Um, I remember my, my boss at the time, Paul Lehman, told me that if you're going to do tour, you have to be okay with getting none of the glory when things go well, uh, but right. all of the blame when they don't go well. Yes. Um, so, and that's because if you're doing your job well in tour, no one, or at least not the general public should ever really know you were there. Uh, if they notice you, uh, it normally means something's gone wrong. And we used to even joke that if a tour person got caught in a shot in the paper or on the news, uh, that they owed the team a case of beer. Yep. <laughs> so we were meant to be invisible. Everywhere the premier went, there was a perception that things just magically went along smoothly. Uh, but actually, everything was planned and coordinated down to the most minute detail. We wear a lot of hats in tour. So... Um, you know, some people compare us to fixers or to scouts, um, but in a nutshell, you know, we would scout out and plan all of the premier's public and media engagement. So I can give you an example. Um, if our government was making an education announcement, for example, um, we may decide the premier should visit a school in X community, let's say in Windsor, then I would travel to Windsor that, perhaps the week before 
uh, visit a few schools, select the location, sort out the visit, what the photo op would be, where the media would go, who the premier would attend with, uh, and most importantly, work with local stakeholders. Uh, then on the day of the visit, I'd be on site ahead of the premier and make sure everything goes off without a hitch. And I think I think people don't necessarily like, you know, that sounds detailed enough, but I remember at the time in that lead up to that election, every school visit had really detailed drawings on the chalkboard behind the premier. Like there was like artistic elements to this work. Like there was the backdrop was always, you know, very, very engaging and dynamic. And then, you know, talking to tour folks, um, you know, campaign ones and also the premier's office, like you had to do things like you had to measure the exact amount of time it took to get from point A to B while you were driving, but even things like, you know, as we get into the campaign period, how tall bridges are because the tour bus has to fit under it. So like, these are some like really detailed calculations and details that you put into the day. What, what was some of the weirdest stuff that you had to account for on tour? Uh, well, books and libraries was always one, like it, it is full right. library. I'm sure that anything in the, in the headshot was appropriate. Exit signs, didn't really want exit signs caught in the backdrop. Um, you talked about about the buses, um, which wasn't something that we did in day-to-day tour. Like that was very campaign specific. Um, so I'd never had to route for buses before. That was a new thing that I sort of learned about um, during the actual, like in the lead up to the actual campaign. Um, but quite literally, yeah, in advance of all events, we would drive the routes from like event A to B to C in advance to make sure the buses wouldn't have any issues like hitting a bridge that the bus wouldn't clear um, because the bus couldn't clear it. And then all of a sudden you got the leader's bus and the media bus like stuck and it's pretty embarrassing. Uh, so we do the route in advance so that we, we would know uh, that we were safe to take that route. Um, sounds really tedious and sometimes it was, but it taught me so much about the importance of planning. Right. Right. Cause again, as you were saying, any detail that goes wrong will be blamed on you. Um, I want to talk about the broader premier's office team and how the tour team interacts with them, because we know, you know, I, I had in an earlier episode, we had Tracy Sobers on here, who was responsible for making sure the premier's binder was put together properly. And a lot of people feed into that. One of those teams being the tour team. Can you talk about the relationship that tour has with the rest of the premier's office and some of the people you might be engaging with day to day to make sure the premier's tour goes off without a hitch? We certainly worked with a lot of different people. That's true. And you mentioned Tracy. Uh, She was one that we worked with really, really closely um, as sort of the keeper of everything to do with the premier. Um, She sort of worked all kinds of, of of magic and was, you know, really, really good about um, keeping a handle on the premier's schedule himself and understanding and sort of representing his interest in everything that we designed. Um, So collaboration with Tracy was really, really critical to the role. Um, We worked really closely with communications and with policy, I would say. So making sure our events illustrated the policy we were announcing or the message of the day. Um, And then we worked really closely with the Premier's press secretary. We were often on the road traveling together and collaborating on the needs of the media. 
And then I would say we also worked really closely with the broader operations team and particularly the regional desks. Um, the regional desks were the ones that, you know, represented whether, whether it be the Northern region or the uh, South, Southwest or, or, or whatever region we were visiting. Um, and they were the ones that really held so many of those state important stakeholder relationships. And they were the ones that were well aware of the politics that were ongoing on the ground. How involved was the the tour folks with, you know, sort of choosing where you were going at all? I know in Premier's office, there's something called the integration meeting, which is a meeting that is very intense and very long and very detailed. And it basically brings together a whole bunch of folks across the board, mostly in Premier's office, to figure out what the Premier's schedule looks like, you know, for the month ahead. Um, and coming into play in, into that is is where he will be touring. How involved were you in sort of the early discussions about where he might be going or was it really like, okay, he's going here this week, go figure it out. Our director, Paul Laban, would have been really, he would have been at those integration meetings and he would have been really involved in those discussions. And a lot of factors would have come into play into determining sort of where, what region, let's say he was going to for, you know, which week or which day. My level of involvement was more once we've decided, okay, we're going to Ottawa to do a hospital announcement, or we're going to um, we're going to Kitchener Waterloo for a tech announcement. So let's say then I go there and I visit a few different tech businesses and I provide advice on which one is the best for us to do the event at. So often I go scout out um, like several different options in any given city. Um, you know, maybe if it's a school, maybe I'm visiting three or four schools while I'm there and factoring in sort of um, what the photo op would look like, um, you know, how how open the stakeholder is to hosting us. Um, all those things would sort of come into my recommendation on on which place we would visit. And I would take pretty extensive photos while I was there, too. And sometimes um, I'm bringing all that stuff back to, back to Toronto and we'd have tour team meetings and we'd go through them and kind of make decisions together as well. Did you ever return to certain locations? Because you're like, this was a great location, really easy to plan. Let's go back there. Or was it like sort of, you know, starting from scratch every time you ever did anything? Um, we would go back, but often just like not immediately go back. But we certainly if we had a good experience somewhere and we worked well with the team that was there and um, and uh, we knew that it would be a, a healthy visit, then we definitely would go back. But probably maybe not within the same, you know, definitely not within the same month, maybe not within the same year. So all of the details that you sort of plan out get put into a document called a detailed itinerary or a DI. Um, can you walk through what that document looks like, what it takes to put that together? Because it really is the Bible of tour, and it's something that, you know, as a political staffer, uh, really got ingrained into my head. It's like, this is what tour is. This is how it's planned out. This is how we all are on the same page, quite literally. What what does that process look like creating the DI? So it's so much information. You live and die by your DI. Um but also your event notes. We had something called an event note, which would be specific to every single event. And then your DI would often incorporate several events. So your DI was a view over sort of the entire day. And let's say in one day, um, we do like some glad handing in, the lo in a local community. And then the second event is we make an announcement at a school. And then maybe we have like a rally that evening or something. 
uh, all those three things would go into your detailed itinerary, uh, but then each event gets its own event note. Um, I remember when I first joined tour, my colleague, Jen Beckerman, showed me how to print the entire DI. Often the DI was multiple pages. And so she showed me how to print it in tiny font so that, and then split it up into four quadrants so that I could perfectly fold it uh, and put it in my pocket. And then when I would take it out to the <laughs> it was so small that nobody could peer over my shoulder and read it. That's really smart. Um, yeah, because a DI contains a lot of sensitive information, including literally the premieres every move down to the last minute. So um, you don't really want uh, people um, catching a glimpse of that, especially because the reality is that you always have a member of the opposition attending all of your events uh, and sort of shadowing you. So and just and then media is around and sort of some details uh, would also make it into the DI in terms of like what time the premier was being picked up from his home, like things that just we don't need everybody to know. It actually raises a really good point because, you know, while you were on on tour, I was at the party office and I would get correspondence in and occasionally you get death threats and I would have to work with the OPP on, you know, figuring out if those were real, sending it on to them, that kind of thing. But, you know, just and even folding that. I would say, sorry not to cut you off, but that's another group that I didn't mention that we worked with so closely. Like often the OPP would actually come on our advances with us um, so that we could think through security together and look at the various options for the premier and that sort of thing. So that was another group we worked with really closely. Yeah, I was going to say because their, you know, tour is ever present, the press secretary is ever present, but OPP is ever present. And there's a lot of work to do with them do they ever weigh in on hey we think this you know option that you put together is maybe not safe or we have a concern that's come up through correspondence unit in the premier's office or just like on social media do they ever weigh in on sort of the plans that you put together in tour yeah we would share our plans with them and it was their party to weigh in for sure um they would sometimes, if they knew certain venues, like some of the big hotels, that sort of thing, sometimes they would recommend alternative routes even and things like that. So we definitely worked together really collaboratively. Would they join you sort of before the event happened to do a walkthrough? Like you always see on like the West Wing, like, oh, we're going to a grocery store to do a pop-in. So, you know, the Secret yeah. Service has to go in first and check it out. Yeah, so totally depended on the event. Sometimes they would send someone like days in advance, even like, Sometimes there are multiple sort of scouting visits to a location. So sometimes they would send someone days in advance to go check it out and have a lay of the land before we got there. Sometimes if the event was less complicated, uh, they just came and did a walkthrough um, like the day of the event. So it really varied depending on what was going on. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of different types of setups, the different types of ways you do an event? So, you know, the standard one is premier at a podium with some kind of backdrop, but sometimes there's a crowd of people. Uh, sometimes he's shaking hands with stakeholders. Sometimes it's a sit down in someone's living room and we're having tea and we take a nice picture of that. What is involved in all those different setups, especially when you're involving, you know, sort of outsiders, people from the public um, to be engaging with him in those, in those events? I mean, they are all so different and there's so many different setups. It's hard to uh, talk about all of them, but I mean, you just, labeled a few. I mean, there was anything from sort of the big, big rallies that we would orchestrate, which were all about crowds and 
I can't tell you how many times, how many, how much time I spent fluffing crowds, we call it, to make sure people <laughs> were well energized uh, before the premier walked in. Um, but then really, really totally different events. Like I remember a post-budget um, media availability where we went to the home of a family and talked about sort of what was in the budget that would be beneficial for families. Uh, and the premier like played some street hockey with their son when he when he arrived. Uh, that was the picture that was in the paper um, the next day. And then sort of did a sit down coffee chat with uh, with the parents and then um, and then did a media availability in their backyard. So that's how it generally works for, you know, events that you can plan out in advance. I remember in this would have been summer of 2012. We were holding a, you know, a political party convention for the for the Ontario Liberals in Sudbury. And there was a whole plan for the premier that week, what he would be doing, engaging with volunteers, all that kind of stuff. And then there was a mall collapse not far away. What does it look like when something urgent suddenly comes, you know, out of the woodwork? There's, you know, an emergency event. There's something going on that needs the premier's physical attention in a location. How does that kind of tour event come together? Because that's very sudden. In that case, it was very sensitive. What does that look like? So that was Elliot Lake, I think you're talking about. And um, I did work in the in the tour office during that time. Um, my our director actually went up for that. So Paul Lehman himself went up for that. Um, and if I recall correctly, I think Paul hitched a ride because um, he wasn't wow. the one in Sudbury. He hitched a ride with the OPP and they drove up there. Um, I, you know, from what I recall, it was obviously really emotional for everybody. Um, it was a tough time for the entire community. So trying to be really, really sensitive um, about what they're going through and, you know, Premier, the premier really wanted to be present there, of course, but also, you know, balancing, not overstepping uh, into what that community was experiencing. Um, and then, of course, like, you know, nothing's planned. It's not like there was like AV sent up in advance or something. So I think Paul had to like borrow a podium from like the local church or something like that. I can't remember exactly the details, but um, yeah, it's much more think on your feet. Uh, and that's probably why uh, advanced people get the reputation of being fixers. I want to talk about a little bit about the, the sensitivity side of things, because there are some places where you know, they're just two or no-nos. Like you're not going to go into a survivors of domestic assault uh, shelter and do, you know, <laughs> have the premier walking through with cameras. Like he might go visit, um, but you're not going to be doing it in the same way. Are there sort of, you know, events that have to take that kind of sensitivity in mind? Like you were just talking about the AV setup. Is there is there different uh, types of visits that require a very different level of engagement from the premier and, and maybe from the media yeah i mean anything involving children was always often one that we had to be really careful about like sick kids was a was a, um, a location the premier really did enjoy going and visiting uh he was passionate about children if you um if you remember that about him uh his mm -hmm. own wife was um was a kindergarten teacher so you know it, it was just something that they um, they were both quite passionate about. But 
we would often go to sick kids and obviously you have to be really conscious and make sure that people are comfortable with the visit and exactly what we're, what, what we're doing and uh, release forms. We had to make sure release forms were signed for any of the children that were participating so that if they were in any shots, um, you know, parents were comfortable with it and um, all of that was, was really well respected and really controlled. And to be quite frank, when we were in scenarios like that, the media was always generally really respectful. Like I never really had an instance where I had to pull the media back um, in that type of scenario. Um, so generally I found uh, that was easy to, or maybe not easy, but that was straightforward in terms of um, in sort of thinking through and working together on. So when you're doing these tour events, you're traveling around, you, you were just talking about, you know, having to borrow a podium, which, you know, brings up the issue of normally the Premier's team will travel with a specific podium that is adjusted for their height. I know Kathleen Wynne was not as tall as Dalton McGinty, so she had a very specific podium that she traveled with that, you know, had a little shelf for her water and, and that kind of thing. What are some of the other technical considerations you have when you're touring? You were just talking about AV as well. What does that look like when you're setting up an event? Yeah, so we had some AV providers that we worked with and they had a couple podiums that um, that we rotated between so those were a couple different options I mean we always had to consider things like lighting and backdrop and all of those pieces we wanted to make sure the press had what they needed so any sort of feed boxes or um, risers if that was necessary anything like that um, and then just the the you know the Sometimes we'd be going to events where we weren't controlling the AV, like if the premier was speaking at some kind of award gala or something like that. Um, so then we would do an advance. And it's funny because I used to think people probably thought I was crazy because I'd be like, I need to see the exact podium that he's going to be using. <laughs> and, and they'd be like, oh, well, it's like kind of like this one. I'm like, no, like I, I need to see it. And then and then I would bring with me uh, I would bring with me legal sized paper and i would make sure that legal size fit on the podium because his speech was often on legal size paper uh, because it meant there was less like page flipping because you could get more words uh, on the page so um if the podium fit legal size i would actually that was one of the details i would put on the event note so that the speech writers would know uh that they could deliver the speech on legal size paper and if it didn't fit legal size i indicated letter but our preference was legal and so i would literally uh, have to do this for every event <laughs> it's it's just amazing the level of, of detail and you know, as a former speechwriter, I would greatly appreciate those kind of details because, you know, depending on the speaker, they have different needs with how they want the page set up. I worked for a minister who only wanted text on the top half of a legal size sheet of paper because his eye line would be better when he glanced down. Uh, so it just speaks to like how specific these needs are, but that they're they're there for a real reason. Like that you're not just being fussy. This is actually a there's a real reason behind this. Um, so you did tour with the premier in government, but then you also did tour on the campaign trail. Uh, the liberals were facing, you know, an uphill battle going into the 2011 election in the fall. And tour was going to be, you know, as it is with every campaign, a very crucial part of the election strategy for getting the leader out there on camera in front of people. Can you talk about how different it was organizing the leader's tour versus the premier's tour? 
again, you're working in a month long campaign here. I assume it's, you know, not that much busier than when you're in the premier's office because you're already running at all hours of the day. But how different did that look? And was there anything that was sort of, you know, changed between working with the government side versus a campaign? Mm -hmm. I mean, so in many ways it was really similar. Um, but then just so much more concentrated. There just, there were, there was more events every day. Um, I think the only day we didn't do events at the time was on Sundays, um, unless if maybe there was some really um, particular reason to do one. We were constantly on the road, uh, rarely slept at home. But what was nice during the campaign was that you got to be part of a tour team. So obviously I was part of a team in government, but you each individually scout and plan your own events. So there's a lot of time on the road traveling by yourself when it's just day-to-day -day government work. Um, but during the campaign, you were actually part of a team that traveled together. So I think there was maybe five teams total. Each team had four people on it um, and you would travel everywhere together. We basically lived out of our assigned SUV, uh, which certainly had its downsides in some ways, but, um, but it, it was, uh, it was different from always traveling alone. Sometimes, uh, sometimes for good, sometimes for, for, for bad, but, um, but yeah, you know, I talked about things like routing buses. Uh, that was something I certainly never did day-to-day -day government. Um, uh, but just really, like I said, like the concentration, the sheer amount of events that we had to do, the amount of traveling we had to do, um, and everything was a lot, like was very political all the time. So, uh, it was different from government in that, um, like every single day had a very, very strong political lens. So uh, whether it was rallies or whether it was, um, you know, like cutting pie at the local diner, like it all felt uh, more like a, a politician on the road in that way. Yeah, I think one of the, the biggest differences during the campaign is just the sheer number of rallies. Like basically, you know, the leader storms into a different town or sometimes a different region. Like I, I remember, you know, in the 2015 campaign, there's pictures of Justin Trudeau coming into, I don't know, I think it was Peterborough or something. And there's just crowds of people in the street. Like they just took over the street kind of thing. Um, I don't think there was much of that with Dulce McGinty and, you know, his third time out that tends to not happen as you've been around for a while, but just adding in crowds, uh, how different is that? Because you don't really get that kind of environment during you know a government tour that's true and i really like the rallies i mean we did get huge crowds at the rallies but it's true that we didn't have like people turning up on the street in the way that trudeau did in his campaign um but i like honestly some of my favorite memories are like fluffing the crowds at rallies i thought it was um you kind of got a burst of adrenaline from it um and often like we actually had a dj in 2011 that traveled on the road with us yeah his name was vince um and he was really it was really fun so he was the one that was he worked with um he worked with john zaricelli to like plan out all the music for all the rallies and stuff um so because the rally is supposed to feel like a party like you want people really really energized and having a lot of fun but you also have to yeah. balance the music. like you can't play anything that's inappropriate with like lyrics that are disrespectful to women or use yes. words or anything like that so it's really important to find like fun uplifting respectful music what is what is it like setting up for an event like that that is so early in the morning but requires so many people involved like how early do you have to get up for that what is it like are you just funneling i was so used to it i used to get up so early all the time 
And maybe that's why I'm still a really big morning person today. And it's funny, I hadn't really thought about that in a long time, but often I was waking up like at four in the morning. That wasn't unusual for me to get somewhere to be on site really, really early. I d depending on where the event was, I often slept like nearby, um, like got a hotel room nearby so that I was really, really close. Um, so that wasn't unusual for me. And to be quite honest, particularly on the campaign, days blur into nights, blur into afternoons, blur into mornings. So uh, probably didn't feel all that weird to me to be like thumping up the music at 8 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. So, you know, all this experience on tour, both in government and in the election campaign, I imagine you, you know, have an idea of what sort of the key skill sets are for that type of role. Can you talk about, you know, if somebody's going into tour, what skills they really need to, you know, either have or work on to do a good job in that role. Mm -hmm. So I'll actually speak about skills and qualities. Um, so first off, you have to be humble because like I said, you get none of the glory. So check your ego at the door. Right. Um, you have to be con you have to be a kind but assertive negotiator. So there's often details you have to sort out, things you have to make happen and others don't understand why and you can't always tell them. Um, so I always said it was important to kill with kindness in these negotiations. Uh, stakeholders are so important, but you know, the public that you're interacting with is just so important when it comes to tour. And the last thing you want to do is upset them or leave someone with a bad taste in their mouth. You have to have an eye for a shot for the photo op. Um, some people have this naturally, like one of my friends, Tim Smithman, he can set up a shot like nobody that I've ever seen before. He just sees it right away. He walks into the room and he knows what he wants. Uh, for me, it didn't come as naturally. I certainly had to work with people like Tim, like Paul Lehman, like Paul Deany, John Beckerman. I, I, I watched them and I learned from example to develop that skill. And then you have to sweat the small stuff. This is more important in tour than probably in any job I've ever had. Uh, and then finally, I'd say you have to be discreet. There's lots you never really get to share about your job doing advance. Uh, I was often on the road, but I was really, really careful about who I shared details with, about where I was going. I rarely posted things on social media um, because, you know, that could tip off where the premiere was going to be the following week. I, I, I think I do like that you've added in, you know, qualities there because I think there's certain personalities that are well suited for that work. You know, I did tour for a minister for a while. I rarely went out with him on tour, but it was very much about, I'm an intense detailed planner and I have a crazy DI and I have like, I literally used to have like an 18 month Gantt chart of like tours and things like that that I worked off of. And there's a crazy level of detail. So if you're not a detail oriented person, I, I don't think tour is for you. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, you were talking about these places that you went to, but maybe couldn't talk about all the time. Was there a specific place across Ontario or maybe a, a specific tour memory that, you know, really sticks with you as, as a favorite over this time? So remember I told you that tour people are really discreet? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. In all seriousness, like lots of stories, some I probably wouldn't share, but um but uh, it's more the people, like the people that stick with yeah. you, the people you meet in various communities. Like for whatever reason, there's this man named Bob Down uh, in uh, in uh, Huron Bruce. We were there with Carol Mitchell doing like a farm visit, and he had his family had owned their farm since before Confe uh, before Confederation. Like he stays in my mind. He was one of the nicest people I sort of have ever met. Um, 
So it's more the people like you get to go to these communities that I wouldn't normally go to, like the Amira Maple Syrup Festival, like, <laughs> you know, some of these really, really niche things that um, I probably wouldn't have visited um, otherwise. So it's things like that that stick in my mind, my colleagues too, like, you know, I talked about Jen Beckerman. She had this ritual where after an event, we all had to go get McFlurries. <laughs> I don't think I never even had a McFlurry before I met Jen Beckerman. <laughs> yeah, my sense from, you know, sort of the last days of any election campaign is that your teams all come back in because there's no more things to be routing. And I was always amazed by, especially in 2018, by how much energy they still had and just like the bond between them. Like they were mm -hmm. like, one person by the end of the campaign like it's just you know this unit together yeah so i never came back in because my team was i think there was two teams that got left operating till the bitter end mine was one of them and we actually did election night in ottawa so i was sort of tour right till the bitter end in 2011. you ended up uh leaving your tour days behind dalton mcginty of course stepped down in 2013 well technically 2012 but he left in 2013 uh, to move on from government and you did the same you you know you went and worked for a hospital for a little bit and then you joined a consulting company navigator where you are now principal and you've been there for I think the last eight years um, but in all that time you've stayed involved in the party um, you became the elected VP communications for the party's executive council which is basically the governing board of the party um, you became communications chair for the 2020 leadership convention which was a time we got to work closely together and then now you're serving as the co-chair for the party's election campaign debrief for the 2022 election that just passed can you talk about why you decided to take on such demanding volunteer roles and i've seen you work them so i know they're very demanding roles uh, what they entail and then why others maybe should get involved in similar ways as the party rebuilds itself after this past campaign i guess the most basic truth is that when i initially left politics i had a lot of fomo like it's a really hard transition to leave and be right. sort of on the inside track and remove yourself from that and um it's an adjustment and uh some people compare it to <laughs> to withdrawal um so so for me, by staying involved in this way, I got to keep contributing to the party and got to be part of it. Um, so, in a, you know, at least in a meaningful way. Um, so first doing that as um, as VP of communications when I served on executive council. Um, so, you know, that that role would have all the board type duties that you would imagine in terms of a strategic advisory role. Um, but then when we lost government in 2018, we really didn't have a lot of resources so i honestly became like a volunteer press secretary um uh, right, yeah. party and i was doing that off the side of my desk like i had a full uh full day job um and i was doing this in whatever time i could sort of manage um but i cared deeply about the people that were still involved uh people like our interim leader john frazier and like our party president brian johns uh, they really kept me motivated uh, by the hard work that they were doing for our party, um, you know, as strong leaders uh, to keep supporting the party in this way. Um, and then uh, and when I decided to take a step back from executive council, it was, um, you know, I, we already knew the leadership convention would be coming up. Um, so I did, uh, I did say that I would stay through as communications chair for uh, leadership convention. 
Um, you know, this wasn't all that dissimilar to what I was doing on executive council. I oversaw sort of all the various aspects of communications for that leadership convention, everything from membership communication to overseeing the media team. We had a huge amount of media interest for that um, convention, maybe partially because uh, you know, it was a like a delegated convention, which is rare these days. Um, but I you know I think there's also a part of the media that sort of always saw us as a natural uh, opposition. So, uh, so it made sense to see their presence there. We had like a whole bunch of media studios set up live on site. Um, media full media risers. Uh, we had a war room set up on site. Uh, people monitoring our socials, doing all that kind of work, daily, daily um, briefings. I was working with various spokespeople who were doing on-site media interviews, um, supporting. We had people doing communications for every single debate, so overseeing all of that. Uh, so it was, a, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of fun, um, and uh, certainly led to a really packed weekend. Uh, and of course, as many people know, um, that was sort of the last weekend that a lot of people had before the world sort of shut down into uh, COVID mode. And then, um, you know, on the personal side, uh, that leadership convention, you know, I think days before it, I found out that I was uh, pregnant. So um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I actually uh, had a son, um, Leo, um, he was born in October 2020, so really at the height of the second wave of COVID. Um, and it was just a lot going on. I, I probably just didn't have the capacity to keep to keep volunteering to the level that I had um, been doing for the party. So I did take a step back in the most recent election um, for the 20, June 2022 election. I didn't really play any kind of official role. Um, and what I didn't know by doing that is that I had apparently really well set up myself to be a co-chair for the campaign debrief because <laughs> I wanted people uh, who hadn't been involved on that election to sort of, you know, do a postmortem and um, figure out, uh, you know, what went really well, what, where, where's there room to improve. Um, and that's what the, the debrief will ultimately be, hopefully, is sort of a guiding, guiding recommendations as the party moves forward um, into the next election. Uh, and, you know, my advice for people looking to get involved with the party and to participate in the, the rebuild is like, just get out and do. Like, you know, I often say that execution eats strategy for breakfast. And uh, it's great to all sit around and talk about what the party should be doing. But if you can think of like, one thing that you can actually pick up and do yourself, um, whether that's in your local community, whether that's writing some kind of uh, op-ed, I don't know, whatever whatever your skill set is, whatever you're interested in, just like think of, if you think of an idea, like don't just voice it, like go out and do it. That is a pretty good segue into our final question, which is about, you know, bringing it back to, to women in politics and just given all your experience, you know, in government, on the campaign trail and on the volunteer side of things, what advice would you give to other women? And I think at this point, especially young women about volunteering and working in politics, uh, you know, as we as we move forward. But what I guess what comes to mind right away, especially for someone like me who worked a role like tour, um, is to do it while you're young. Um, many roles, but especially roles like tour, just become harder and harder as you do get older and have more responsibilities at home. 
Um, you know, you're on the road a lot, you work long hours. It's so much fun. Like nowhere else will you work with so many people in your general age range who are all working toward a, a common cause. Um, it really creates such camaraderie that I've never experienced anywhere else. Um, and then, you know, now fast forward over a decade since I left tour and I have a mortgage and a toddler and things are just different, you know, you know, either my husband or I, like one of us has to be home every night. Uh, so being on the road for a 30 day rip period would be so much more challenging today than it was in my twenties. Uh, so there is like, I hate to say it, but there is some sort of shelf life there. Um, um, and then I hate to say it even more, but you know, despite like so much progress that has been made, there's still different standards for women, uh, different expectations in Canada. Women still only make up like, I don't know, just over 35% of leadership positions or something like that. Um, and it's true of every industry. So, you know, um, so my advice would be, don't forget to look out for yourself and for your own interests and your own growth, because ultimately if you aren't looking out for yourself, you can't expect that somebody else will. Um, and that said, like, it doesn't, I, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be supporting others uh, or supporting the team because it's so important to pay it forward. Uh, so remember those that have taken you under their wing and who have passed on their knowledge and then identify how you can do that for the next generation. Perfect. I think that's a great note to end on. Thanks so much for joining. Sisters Can podcast is hosted and produced by Teresa Loopwoods. Our theme song, Trailblazer, was created by four-time Emmy-nominated composer Guillaume. And our logo was created by Canadian graphic designer Andrea Ledwell. Thanks for tuning in.